Well, good morning, Highlands. It's good to see you. My name is Alex. I'm uh, helping out here as kind of an interim in this transition season that we're having, but I'm one of the pastors on staff and uh, looking forward to digging into God's Word together this morning, looking at uh, some of the... I think some of the most foundational teachings of, of Jesus uh, in, in the Gospel of Mark. And so looking forward to uh, doing that together here this morning. Um, a few years ago, I was working uh, with a group of young adults. I was actually helping kind of lead a group and was uh, at an event. And actually, they were, I had about 15 or 20 of them over at my house. And I was watching as there was this uh, guy and a girl uh, that were interacting, and they were, the girl was, at least in my opinion, very clearly interested in, in the guy. Uh, you know, she was uh, just batting the eyes and, uh, you know, paying a lot of attention. And, it, you know, one of the, the sure signs that at least I always found uh, was when they laugh at your jokes, even when they're really not funny. Uh, but she was, she was laughing. He, she thought he was hysterical. And it's, it's interesting when uh, in years past, you know, you want to get a message out to a potential romantic interest. You kind of start putting out a vibe, putting out some signs in hopes that they might pick up what it is that you're laying down. Uh, if they're aware of it and interested as well, they uh, might reciprocate with a few, and you begin kind of having this, uh, this dance that's going on kind of underneath the surface. And the reason that we do it is, uh, well, really just plausible deniability. You know, if at some point you misread the signs and you ask, or, and people are going, is there something there? You can go, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I just thought it was funny. But it was interesting, I, I, with this guy, he, I went up to him and I, I said, uh, you know, I think this lady might be interested in you. Uh, you may want to consider asking her out. And what I thought at that point was we were going to have a conversation about kind of discerning the signs. Um, but he said, you know, I don't get involved with that anymore. With all the online stuff, I can just go on and swipe the ones that, and tell them that I'm interested and they can tell me that they're interested in me and I don't have to worry about if I'm missing the signs or not. And I was like, wow, times have changed. Because uh, usually those sign discerning conversations are a big part of adolescence and growing up. I mean, they're a big part of what you do with your friends. Like, is he, isn't he? Is she, isn't she? What are these signs mean? And signs have the ability for, to, to just fade into the background for people that aren't paying attention. So if that guy was not interested in her, those signs just seem to not be a, a thing to him. But if he was interested, he'd be seeing those signs and he'd be reading what's going on. And it would give him some clues about how he should proceed and move forward. So signs would play a big part of, of our lives, the subconscious things that oftentimes we're not very aware of. And it, it's interesting, it's uh, probably the first time I've ever consciously chosen to compare some of the decisions of Jesus to that of, you know, adolescent males and females, which if I'm doing the wrong thing, Lord, forgive me. Uh, but Jesus was actually in a season where he was doing some similar things for different reasons. Uh, but in the first century, when he lived and walked and breathed on this earth and uh, was uh, functioning in a, in a cultural climate, 
in which there was a significant angst about who was the Messiah. This big question, who's going to come and free us from Roman occupation? Who's going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And we have to remember that this, there were many people that claimed to be the Messiah. There were multiple people that had staged massive revolts. You can go read about it in Maccabees and uh, claimed to be the Messiah and performed even sometimes signs and wonders. And so at the time that Jesus walked the earth, people were asking legitimately, who is the Messiah? Is this guy the Messiah? Would you give us a sign to indicate to us that you are the Messiah? Would you do something to prove it? But Jesus... Uh, had a different agenda than what everybody else did. And he was not going to reveal who he was to the people that he did not want to know until the time was right. We actually see this, if you go read commentaries on the book of Mark, they call it the Markan secret or the Messiah, Messianic secret. We'll see one of it today where Jesus does these things. He will heal a person or make a bold statement about who he is and then tell people, don't tell anyone. Keep it a secret. Because Jesus was wanting to, to keep some of this a secret until it was time because I believe he knew that once the secret got out, he would be crucified. And that, that's what we begin to see is the, his identity is revealed. Then the plans uh, formalize to crucify him. But he doesn't want, he, he does want a few people to know. Not everyone, but he does want a few people to know. And so we see him kind of putting out some signs so that the people that are able and interested and looking for him with the right heart would actually find him. And it's my heart today as we dig into the, this passage of Scripture is that we would learn to distinguish the signs of Jesus at work in our lives, that we would be a people who are seeking after him and aware of how God is moving so that we can partner with him in what it is that he's doing. And oftentimes, we spend a lot of time feeling very frustrated that God is not moving in our lives the way that we think he is. It's just when he is actually moving, we just can't see it. And I don't want you to live your lives feeling like you're being left out that you're kind of on the outside when in reality, God is on the move. So if you have your Bibles, I uh, would love for you to join with me in Mark chapter 8. We're going to be in today, 8, 9, and 10. <clears throat> and we're going to be looking at a, at a few different stories about people that are engaging with the signs that Jesus is giving and their response to those signs. And some people are going to get it and see the, what the signs are pointing to, and others are not. And as I said before, I, my hope for all of us is that we would be people that see the signs and ultimately see the, sign, the person that they point to. So it starts off in, in verse 11. It says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, in other translations, it says that they were there demanding a sign. The Pharisees were there and they were in an agitated state. They were being argumentative. They were there trying to understand what to do with this man that was healing people, that was teaching with a level of authority that they'd never seen before, who was garnering crowds of people following him, and with, that, with whom they could not control. 
and they were trying to, to, to figure out what do we do with him? Is this the Messiah? Is this who that person is? And, and so they, in their agitated state, are demanding from Jesus a sign. And who enjoys being demanded of anything? <laughs> it's not a lot of fun. And Jesus is not particularly happy with it. But when you look at the situation that Jesus is in, it, it's funny. Um, and I'll explain that in just a second. But it, it moves on and it says in response to them that he sighed deeply in his spirit. He said, why does this generation seek a sign? So if you look back just a little bit in your, the headings for each of the, the passages, which are not inspired, those have been added by biblical scholars uh, to help divide up the, the passages of Scripture to make sense to us. But you'll see just before Jesus is being demand, a sign is being demanded of him, just before that is that Jesus fed 4,000 people. An absolutely extraordinary miracle that the Pharisees were just there to witness. They were just there seeing this happen. And if they weren't right there seeing it happen, I assure you that some of those 4,000 people would have leaked what just happened and they would have heard of this miracle. And yet here they are demanding a sign from someone who literally just gave one. It says that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. Now, the parents that are in the room, you know this sigh. <laughs> this, this deep, guttural, Ugh. I had one of, not my first experiences with it, but my most recent experience with this gut sigh. Uh, when we had we're on our way back after having just spent seven days in Los Angeles, going to Disney World, taking our kids to, uh, out to eat every day, doing a, a wonderful vacation. And one of my children, and he will remain nameless, uh, was throwing an epic temper tantrum at the, at the Los Angeles airport, screaming at me that I never do anything for him. And this is as I'm literally carrying the stuffed animals and bags full of stuff that we're bringing back for him in my arms of, of Disney stuff. And I, I'm just sitting here going, oh my goodness. That just deep sigh of child, you do not understand what you're doing. <laughs> but it's defeating. And that's what's happening right here. Jesus just did an amazing miracle. And the Pharisees can't even see what it was that was done. And they're demanding and they're getting angry with Jesus about it. And Jesus says that truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And specifically, we do see Jesus giving some signs. He just is giving some, but he's not going to give them when he's being demanded like a genie in the bottle. God wants to be found. He wants us to, to recognize the signs. But when our posture is that of demanding, it actually can blind us to the signs that God is giving us or already has given us that are right in front of us. And so from there, we have the, the, this brief interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees where we've got this group of people that are absolutely blind and can't see the signs that are going on right in front of them about what Jesus is doing, and they're demanding it, and they're, they're getting angry. 
And we see Jesus move on now with his disciples. He moves away from the group and is now just alone with his disciples and they're traveling. And it says that uh, in verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. It's fascinating just having come from what they'd come from with, you know, who knows how many thousands of loaves were produced and they're down to one. They got one left between the, the 13 of them, Jesus and his 12 disciples. And Jesus, never losing a moment or wasting a teachable moment, says, and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. This is something that we can just pass by and say, oh yeah, you know, be careful with what gets kneaded into the dough and uh, miss out, I think, on something that's significant here for us, particularly as churchgoers. Now, the leaven or the yeast uh, is what is used to rise the dough, to give, uh, dense, or to, to give expansion to the bread. And without it, you get flat bread that is not particularly appetizing. I mean, I suppose some people might enjoy that, but not my cup of tea. But what Jesus is saying here is that there is a yeast that the Pharisees are using that actually can cause an external vision or make it look like there's growth that's going on. And it is actual growth that is going on, but it's not growth that's coming for the right reasons. The Pharisees were steeped in legalism. They were steeped in a, 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 a faith that was wrapped up in behaving your way into acceptance before the Lord. And the thing that we have to remember is that this, this false doctrine was working. And it was powerful. And it plays to many of the, the ways that human beings are wired up. I like to earn things. I like to be believe that I'm deserving of things. I fall into the rut all the time of trying to work my way into God's graces. And it can be addictive, these systems that, that play into that and help you think if you just do these things, if you improve your behavior, if you do this certain set of actions, that you can be right before the Lord. And there was some growth. There was something there that you could say, okay, there's, I, I mean... Something is happening. It's growing. I cannot tell you the number of times I have heard pastors who are uh, experiencing growth in their church, but they're doing it through means that we probably would call pushing the envelope in a kind way, uh, who are not living lifestyles that are in uh, concert with what God calls pastors to be li living. And when broached or approached with this truth that, hey, your, your personal lifestyle or your ministry methods or strategy are not in alignment, they will respond with, well, something's working. The church is growing. And it's a powerful, powerful defense. I've watched elder boards just collapse, <laughs> bringing meaningful critique to a pastor who can just say, well, we're growing. Churches, businesses, any types of organizations can grow. But simply growing doesn't mean that it is growing for the right reasons. At no point in your life should you ever choose to just willingly shut off your discernment uh, skill. 
Because it is absolutely possible, and we're seeing this over and over again in the church in the United States right now, that you can grow a church and blow it up with the yeast of the Pharisees. You can blow up a church. You can grow something with the yeast of Herod, which is power and betrayal. And it can look like there's success from the outside. The dough is risen. <laughs> but on the inside, it's, it has no sustainable structure. And we're watching as churches are falling apart because something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ was what grew them. We don't have to look any further than the health-wealth gospel movement. I mean, these churches are preaching a, a false doctrine. I actually think some of them are pretty well-meaning, and I, I, I know them. Um, I know a few of them, and I disagree with them staunchly. Uh, but their, their churches grow, and it would be easy for us to say, okay, well, I mean, they must be doing something right. The dough is rising, and Jesus is saying, no, that's not right. Be aware of it. Be very dialed in to what is causing the dough to grow or the dough to rise because not all things that are healthy or that grow are healthy. And it says that they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So it's almost like they just heard Jesus' teaching and moved right on to, to something else. They didn't pick up on the, what he was trying to press into. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Twelve baskets for the twelve disciples, the twelve tribes of Israel that were the first people to receive the gospel of Jesus. Seven for the seven Gentile nations that would now come to have, be exposed to the gospel because the gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But grace through Jesus for all people. There's a sign in this. There's something that is significant that is going on. This miracle that is about bread that Jesus is, is talking about that multiplied all this is pointing to something that's much bigger than that. And the disciples are missing out on it. And Jesus is asking them, do you have eyes to see? Which is funny because the disciples, at least that we know, were all not blind. They had eyes. Uh, do you have ears to hear? Well, clearly they had ears and were hearing. He's talking about spiritual ears and eyes. Do you have sensitivities to the things of God? Are you aware uh, of uh, that wavelength of communication that's going on? And what we see in the text and what I know to be true in our lives is that there are times that we don't. We don't have the eyes and the ears of the Spirit to see what God is doing. And consequently, we end up missing out. Now we see the, the disciples here that are kind of right on that fence. They aren't missing out as much as what we see the Pharisees are. And the Pharisees are completely missing the boat. 
And the Pharisees are missing the boat because they have an idea, an expectation, a belief around who the Messiah is supposed to be. And Jesus was not fitting into it because he didn't, they didn't agree with him. I think they probably had a lot of agreements theologically, but pragmatically, they viewed things very differently. And one of the hard realities for all of us is that we have a tendency to create Jesus in our own image. And when we do that, like the Pharisees did here, we end up missing him. If Jesus, the, the Jesus that you worship, votes the same way that you do, likes all the people that you like, and dislikes all the people that you dislike, you're probably worshiping an idol and not the risen Christ. Jesus, and it's one of the, the very critical things about our scriptures and why we have to return to it over and over again is that we are idol-making machines. We love to create things in our own image. And ultimately, we have a hard time embracing the real Jesus because he's different than what I would make him out to be. He's always better. But man, he does some things that I would do differently. <laughs> and how often do we miss the work that we have? Because, I, I mean, I've got several areas in my life right now where God is not behaving the way that I think he should be behaving. I think he should be doing some things radically different than what he is. And because I've got that belief, it's very easy for me to get focused over here and miss out on all the work that he's doing, the good things that he's doing. And the question for me, just like it was to the disciples, is do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Are you building a box for Jesus that you need him to live in? And are you being disappointed because he won't stay there? The Pharisees, had a box for Jesus. And because of that, they missed him. They missed the Messiah. They missed the signs that he was doing it because of their expectations. So after this, we continue traveling with the disciples and Jesus and them uh, are headed north uh, in Israel to Caesarea Philippi. And uh, it, really cool part of Israel. It's a, a very lush part of the area. And if you go there, you can actually see the, this cave that they thought led to hell. And uh, if I lived in that time and uh, didn't have an understanding of science, like I might be convinced based on what you saw to think that this actually led to hell. It's a little bit of a scary place and deep, deep into the, the, the ground this thing goes. But it says that here, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the village, villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Or who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, who at this point was a dead guy. Uh, others say Elijah, another dead guy. And others, one of the prophets, all a bunch of dead guys, which is just fascinating. You know, what's the scuttlebutt on the street? And they all think that he's some reincarnation of a dead prophet that was there. He's not unique. And he stops at that moment and looks at the disciples and changes it from, what do people say that I am? But what do you say that I am? This is a moment I'm sure that Jesus was 
uh, waiting for, for quite a while. The time that he would put to test uh, the disciples to see if they're actually picking up on all the signs that he's laying down. Are they getting it? Because these are the people that he wanted to truly understand it. And what we see here is that in what happens regularly, the, one of the, uh, the guys that's got some of the loosest lips speaks up, Peter. And Peter says, you are the Christ. Peter, a fisherman, not a religious professional, not an expert in the scriptures, not the person that should have figured this out, is the first person in the New Testament, or first person in this story that we see that recognizes who Jesus is, who saw the signs and saw who the person that is that they pointed to. And Peter gets it. Peter has the spiritual eyes. Peter has the spiritual ears that Jesus is wanting, the, the type of uh, ears that are able to hear what God is saying, the signs that God is putting down. And Jesus, immediately we see this secret, this Messiah secret come out. And Jesus says, charge them strictly not to tell anyone about it. Jesus is not ready for this news to get out yet. He's not ready to turn his face to the cross. Uh, it's not a part of the plan yet, and so he closes it down. But in the other passage, the, the other gospel of Matthew that has this story, we have this profound response from Jesus where he says, you are Peter. So his name up to this point was Simon, which means tossed about easily or broken reed. And he says, you are Peter. You are a rock. And on this rock, which we're not Catholic, so we don't believe that Jesus is referring to Peter at this moment. There's a double entendre here, but he's referring, the rock that he's referring to is the confession of the Christ. It's the recognition of Jesus as the Messiah. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's a lot of angst right now if you uh, dig into kind of church business circles uh, asking, because overall church is shrinking in the United States. And there's a lot of consternation about what are we going to do about this? How are we going to handle it in a world that's increasingly secular? What are we going to do about it? How are we going to change? And, you know, you've got people that are, well, we need to adapt our services and how we do this. And others are, uh, you see them adapting their theology to fit the times and the, their practices to fit the times. And it's tempting to believe that those are the things that we need to do in order to withstand the attacks from the gates of hell. When the truth is of Scripture, what Jesus promises is that what will stand is the confession of Christ as Lord. That is what we have to offer. It's the firm foundation that we stand upon. It is the foundation that you can bet your life on. And that when times of trouble comes, that the gates of hell will not prevail against you if you have confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, and your Lord and Savior. Peter recognized all of this. 
man who wasn't supposed to, but he recognized this because he had spiritual eyes and ears to see. And then we move into uh, the last uh, pericope that we're looking at today, the story of a rich young man. And in this situation, we're not dealing with issues of missing signs. We're actually dealing with somebody who reads the signs correctly. But like all of us, we're faced with the reality of what do you do with those signs when you see them? Because simply recognizing them doesn't mean that you're going to get to your destination. And it says, And he was setting out on his journey. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, this is Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is just a master teacher. <laughs> he's sitting here with this person and, and he's again pushing and giving a sign here. You call me good, but no one is good but God. So you just called him God. You're recognizing in that moment that Jesus is God. At least that's what Jesus is pointing to. And it says, you, Jesus says, you know the commandments. <laughs> Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And what we're told is that the young ruler said, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. So Jesus does something here that, again, is easy to miss if you're just reading through this quickly. So Jesus is referring to the Ten Commandments. And the, the engagement with this rich young ruler who's saying, well, I've kept the Ten Commandments. But the problem is, is that Jesus doesn't list all the commandments here. And in fact, he intentionally leaves one off. So the first four commandments are about how we interact with God. The last six are about how we interact with one another. And he misses one of those about how we interact with one another. And it's about covetousness wanting what we don't have. Something that not all rich people inherently struggle with, but would make sense for someone who is bound up with the love of money and the love of material things that he would struggle with covetousness. And not only that he would struggle with it, but that he would be blind to his struggle. So Jesus puts this up and he can't even see himself in the mirror that Jesus gives. And this is one of the most profound moments in all of Scripture. And, and these are lines that for you, I would encourage you to underline them in your Bible, write them down, sear these in your memory. Because here you're dealing with someone that is trying, but he's just not getting it. Kind of like me a lot of times. I'm trying, but I'm just not getting it. And Jesus doesn't condescend to him. He doesn't fold his arms and just go, man, you're, you're slow. I really thought that you would have picked up on this. It says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Loved him. Man, I know there, that's probably the one thing that I needed this morning uh, to hear and to remember. That even in the midst of uh, challenges that I face in life, my own brokenness, that Jesus doesn't sit there in judgment of me, but he loves me. He actually is working to help us get out of the things that are binding us 
to live more in the fullness. And, and so what Jesus is about to do, what he's about to ask him is not just an arbitrary, I want to test you, but this is a specific task that's given to deal with the specific issue that this man is facing. And it says, Jesus said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He's telling this man who struggles with covetousness, who struggles with a love of material things, that the way, the path of death for him is by giving up what he owns. It's important to note because Jesus doesn't call everyone to do this. But for people that are struggling with covetousness, the same that with any other sin, it is better to enter the, the kingdom totally broke and bankrupt than it is to be bound by the sin of covetousness. And what we're told, though, is that this young ruler who was just loved by Jesus but given an incredibly overwhelming task is disheartened by the saying. And it says, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. We are, compare this story to what had happened not too long ago, which was Jesus calling his disciples and the same offer was extended to this man that was extended to Peter. And Peter, with eyes to see and ears to hear, dropped everything and followed Jesus. Because they believed that what was in front of them, what the signs, what the signs pointed to were of much greater value than what was behind them. But this man, who was caught up with the love of material possessions, thought that what was behind him was more valuable than anything that the signs were pointing to. And so he missed out on the opportunity to follow the Messiah around Israel. The experience of a lifetime. Can you imagine what he would have seen if he was willing to do so? And the question for all of us that we have to face is that particularly as believers, is that we can get all the way up to this point. We can say, hey, I, I recognize that there's something unique about this Jesus. There's something about him that's different than every other available option that, that's out there. And I, I th actually think he might be the son of God. But then there comes a point in time when Jesus asks us to take up our cross to die to ourselves, to give up the things that are holding us back, the sin that is holding us back, the, the, the accomplishments that we have in our past that we've built our identity on, or failures in our past that we've wrapped our identity around. And Jesus says, you can't have that and, and follow me. You've got to lay it down. And I think a lot of people that show up at church do exactly what he did. We've seen all the signs, but we can't follow Jesus where he's going because it's too hard and because we value the things of this world more than the things that Jesus has to offer us. And I am one of those people. This isn't a you problem. This is a we problem. I value things in the physical world way more than I should. But it's an important reminder that we can get, read all of the signs we can understand the text. We can see the person that this is pointing to and we can still refuse to follow him on the path that he is walking down.
And so today, what are you going to do with the signs? What are you going to do with the signs that God has in your life? Are you going to continue to ignore them and walk away? Are you going to follow them, but only follow them up to a certain point? Or are you going to be willing to lay down your life so that you can find your life in him? Would you pray with me? Father, I, I repent of how often I am willing to take solace and comfort in the things of this world, material possessions, relationships, status, things that, have, that all are going to burn and pass away. And Lord, I need your help. I need your grace to learn to value um, the right things in the right way, to value the things of heaven, to value the, the spiritual treasures the, that you have waiting for us. I need your help because it's hard. Lord, I don't want to be this rich young ruler who got so close but couldn't follow through because I love the things of this world too much. So for all of us that are here today, we, we repent of that, Lord, and we want to step into the fullness of, of life with you, but we know that that requires us to pick up our cross. Give us grace to do that today, Father. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.